I wanted to talk with you here at the very beginning about, about additives. Additives are, are typically a huge part of what we, uh, uh, you know, experience every day in our lives. I want that coffee cup if you don't mind. One of my favorite things to do every day, and I do it like clockwork, is I make my morning coffee. Okay. Now, my morning coffee is unlike uh, most of your morning coffee because in order to make my morning coffee, there's quite a process involved. To begin with, it's French press. Anybody know what I'm talking about, French press? So I have my French press there, and I get my caffeinated can, five scoops of that. I get my decaf can, five scoops of that because I have a trimmer. I don't want to have too much caffeine, so I mix that all in there. And then guess what I do? I put lots of cinnamon in there and a big teaspoon of turmeric or turmeric, however you say that. And so here we go. We're, we're, we're getting there. And then I take scalding hot water and I pour that in there and let it steep for a little while. And while that's happening, I run over to the fridge. I grab out two types of milk. I get almond milk and I get coconut milk and I mix those puppies together. Two cups of that, stick it in the microwave, three minutes, boom! Take it out, pour it into my cups, along with a little bit of my stevia sweetener, a little bit of um, Himalayan salt, pour my coffee in there, pour my milk in there, and you have what I'm drinking right here, which is the most amazing coffee. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of work, and it sounds like way too much trouble, and most of you would never do it, but I do it every single day of my life, and I absolutely love it. And I didn't even tell you about the MCT oil and other things that I put in there, because with coffee, you know, this thing of mixing stuff works really well. It's not such a bad idea, because Mixing things together can make it taste better, can make it better for you, and all of that kind of stuff. But there are some things that you just don't need to mix anything with. And one of those things is the gospel. And yet, we find that with the gospel, there are lots of us who have experienced a gospel that has had something added to it. It's like Jesus plus tithing every Sunday, or Jesus plus don't go fishing on Sunday, or Jesus plus, you know, hairdos and hemlines, or Jesus plus something else. And what ends up happening is the thing that used to be just the gospel ends up being something completely other. It ends up being a distortion of the gospel. And this particular problem was a problem in the church at Galatia. And we are going to be doing a brand new study on the book of Galatians for the next several weeks. And so this is the introduction to that sermon series. Next week, Jeff Nitz will be here preaching from Galatians as well. A few weeks after that, we got Josh Leskowski coming to share from Galatians as well. So it's going to be several weeks of us working together on the book of Galatians. Now, true to form, an introduction to the book of Galatians has to put things into what? Say it for me, C word. Into... Context, because context is super important when we're looking at the scripture and we want to really fully understand what is going on here. So we're going to take a look at a little bit of a timeline here. So I want you to think in terms of like A.D., okay? This is like A.D. This is like the very beginning of the current uh, year numbering system that we are living under today. So at the very, very beginning, I just kind of want to take you through where the birth of Jesus fits into this. So so the birth of Jesus starts at the very beginning. We all know that he was born in Bethlehem, that the scripture says that he was from Nazareth, and the majority of his ministry happened right here within this little circle that I am showing you right here on the map, okay? That That was the beginning of Jesus's life and of his ministry, Okay, we know that he started his ministry in approximately the year 30 AD. So he's about 30 years old, and he begins his ministry, enters into the waters of baptism with John the Baptist there, 
God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And for three years, he traveled around that region I showed you and ministered to people and taught people. But what I'd like to talk to you about right now is a very important, very special period of time. I call it 53 days that changed the world. Let's take a quick look at these Ah, 53 days that changed the world. We have some font problems. I tried to embed it, and it worked on a Mac, of course, but then the moment they put it on a PC, everything went all crazy. So anyhow, forgive the fonts. So these are the 53 days that changed the world. It all begins with Jesus' crucifixion, and then three days later, his resurrection. And then there's this period of 40 days where Jesus reveals himself to people over and over again, appearing to them. More than 500 individuals saw Jesus until on the 43rd day, Jesus ascended into heaven where his living body still sits in the presence of God on the right hand of God's throne, and he is alive And because he lives, you and I will live as well. But before he left, Jesus left them with a a command. He said, go and wait, because I'm sending the helper to you. And he sent the helper on the day of Pentecost. And let me just go backwards one time. He sent the helper on the day of Pentecost, which was that um, uh, feast of weeks, wherein the Jews celebrated the God's giving to them the law when they were in the wilderness. Uh, in this particular case, on the day of Pentecost, God gives the Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, he gave the law to the Jews. In the New Testament, he gives the Spirit to the church. It's in beautiful fulfillment, Elizabeth, to that promise of the new covenant, where in Ezekiel he says, I will place my spirit within you, and I will write my laws on your heart so that you'll be able to obey all of the commands that I give you. So these 53 days that change the world are hugely important to us. It's like the moment or the the time in which Jesus completed the work of God necessary to lay that final brick to put the new covenant into place. It's why we are here today as the church. It's because of these 53 days. This is the, the most pivotal moment in history. And so as a result, what ends up happening uh, after the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, then we see that the, the, the guys go and they wait for the Holy Spirit. He comes down on them. And who can tell me what they did almost immediately as soon as they received the Holy Spirit? What did they do? They took to the streets and they began to preach and to proclaim the gospel. They preached and proclaimed the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was clarified here by the apostle Peter in one of his sermons. I'm going to read just some of this to you. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man predetermined, uh, whoops, I must have missed a word. This man, help me out, Jeannie, what have I got there? You see it? Somebody look this up. Okay, it goes straight to predetermined. All right. This man, predetermined, uh, plan foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So here's the gospel. Jesus crucified. You put him to death. But God, what? Raised him up. Here's the gospel. Jesus raised all right? Putting, him, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So I want you to see here what the gospel actually is so that we understand what, what it is that, that Paul was so concerned about protecting. And that was that the gospel was um, centered in and that its core it was about Jesus. 
Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose having victory over death. And then we're commanded in uh, Acts 38, 39, it says, uh, repent each one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. So we're commanded to repent. And I want to take just a couple of seconds here to talk to you about this word repent. I've done this before, but there are so many new faces here. I think it, it, it's worth doing it again. Uh, can anybody tell me, just any of you theology students, what the Greek word for repent is? Okay, great. That Greek word is metanoia. Repeat that with me, metanoia. Okay, metanoia is a great word, and it's super important to understand it because when you put that word metanoia into its context, basically what that word metanoia means is to have a change in one's thinking. It means to begin to have the thoughts that are consistent with the thoughts of God. To go from thinking, feeling, and believing as you once did to thinking, feeling, and believing in a different way. And we are commanded to repent, to have a change in our thinking regarding Jesus. To agree with God that he is the son. To agree with God that his life was a sacrifice, that he is risen from the dead. And that is how we are saved. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are receiving Jesus to come inside of us. Now, how many of you, when you were growing up, you heard someone tell you the gospel and they talked about inviting Jesus to come and live inside of your heart? That's what I was told, right? I was told that invite Jesus to come to live inside of your heart. Well, that's exactly right. But the means by which God does that is not like taking the body of Jesus out of heaven and bringing him down and stuffing him into your heart. But Jesus, through the means of or by the medium of the Holy Spirit, comes to live within you. So you receive the Holy Spirit when you receive Jesus, and the gospel is all Jesus. It's all about him. It's not about what you do to your outer man. It's not about necessarily uh, the, the, the rules that you follow or the group that you're a part of. It's about Jesus. And your role is to repent and receive. That's it. Okay? So we're, that's the gospel. That was the original good news in its bare form. Okay? Now, I want to overlay into this life of Jesus, into this timeline, the life of another dude whose name you guys are all familiar with. That was Saul of Tarsus, okay? Now, you're going to find out a little bit later, if you don't already know, that he's the author of Galatians. So it's kind of important for us to understand. Did you guys know that Saul of Tar Tarsus was born at around 5 AD, 4 or 5 AD, right around that time? So that puts him just you know, uh, four or five years younger than Jesus, okay? Now, uh, Saul of Tarsus uh, traveled all over. Um, he, he was born up in Tarsus. Let me show you where that was on the map up here. Now, one of the things you may not realize about Tarsus is that this region up here is actually modern-day Turkey, okay? So, Saul, although he was a Jew, was born up in modern-day Turkey in a town called Tarsus, all right? And uh, he studied really hard to become a well-educated Jew. He had, he had uh, renowned teachers. And um, one of the things that he did uh, by appointment of his Jewish faith was that he was known for persecuting Christians. He was to try to put a stop to, to put an end to this Christian sect, to put an end to this cult they called the Christians. And so what he was doing was traveling all over the region 
And anywhere he found these Christians in this cult, it was his goal to do something to try to stop it because from their vantage point, this is a heresy. And many of the people who were believing were Jews. And he had to put, put a stop to this before it got any bigger, right? Well, one day on uh, a trip that he was making uh, from, um, I, don't, I don't remember exactly where he, was, where he was coming from, but he was heading to Damascus. And on this particular road to Damascus, um, Saul has an experience you might say that he sees the light um, or that uh, he gets an eyeful. Uh, God actually puts to death the old Saul and he raises him up as a brand new man. And he, when he raises him up as a brand new man, Saul is blinded. And he kind of uh, gets guided to the house of this man called Ananias uh, and he ends up getting prayed for by this man, and scales fall from his eyes, and suddenly he knows and he understands, and he is able to see the truth that Jesus, the one whom he previously persecuted, was in fact the Son of God. So it's a powerful revelation in his life. Uh, that puts all of that into context somewhat. Now, I just want to let you know when the book of Galatians was actually written. So Paul's converted here, and that's around 49 AD, just in case you're wondering. There are some other, uh, I'm sorry, not 49, it's 34, 34 AD when he is converted, and he writes the book at around 49 AD. So he writes the book of Galatians. So it's been several years since his conversion. Lots of things happened in the life of Paul. That's a really interesting study. You might want to check that out and find out all the different things that happened in the life of Paul. Had a little bit of difficulty being accepted by um, all of the believers because previously he was their enemy. And somehow God had to do some things to really turn that around to get these guys to begin to trust him. So written in 49 AD. And I want to show you on the map where Galatia is. So you can see here's Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And uh, this purple line here shows all the different places where Saul traveled or Paul traveled in his ministries, okay? You guys know he had three primary uh, missionary tours that he went on. And he was in and out of this region right in here where these cities of Lystra and Iconium and Derbe are. He was in and out of there a lot. And he helped to plant the church called Uh, the Galatian church or Galatia. But Galatia itself isn't a city, it's a region. I kind of always thought it was a city, but it's actually uh, a region with lots of different cities. And so this is the, the church to whom he is writing. And the majority of the Christians were probably right down in this region at the time when Saul wrote this book. All right, so I want to show you really quickly um, an outline of the book of Galatians. There it is. Everybody take a quick look. And now we're moving on. Because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this outline. This is kind of just the entire book at a glance. Um, These slides will be available online if you want to see the entire outline. But the other guys who are teaching will be working through uh, the other chapters and other uh, points of the outline. Now, let's dive into the scripture. Open up to Galatians chapter 1. Pop quiz. Who's the author of Galatians? What year was it written? Right. What modern country is Galatia located in? Very good. You guys are doing great. Great pop quiz results today. You get 100 in the grade book. All right, so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to jump into Galatians chapter 1 and uh, take a look at what Paul says in the first 10 verses. That's what we're going to cover, okay? Just in the first 10 verses. It all begins with um, the typical introduction to an epistle. 
Uh, what's the modern day word for epistle? What word would we use instead of saying epistle? A letter. That's right. An epistle wasn't a, a book that was written for a publication in the library. Instead, it was a letter that was written from a person and or persons and sent to other people. And the, the whole point was to encourage, to teach, to love, to nurture, to disciple. And that's what Paul was doing here. Um, and one of the other big things that they did through these epistles was that they corrected error. So whenever there was a problem that needed addressing, they would sometimes write an epistle. So we're going to begin uh, at the very beginning. So Paul is this uh, apostle who sends this letter, and he wants them to know that uh, he is an apostle, an apostle who is not sent from men or through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right here in the very introduction, you know, it'd be like you writing a letter um, to Zoe saying, Dear Zoe, all right? Someone's writing a letter. Dear Zoe, uh, this letter is from John Stroud, who is an elder at Mosaic Church, who uh, loves Jesus and follows him. You know, boom. I mean, it's kind of a little bit funny that he puts that in there. But his heart, it just bleeds the gospel. He loves the gospel. He's centered in the gospel, and he wants them to be, and he wants them to know that his calling is not from men. It doesn't come from those guys up there in Jerusalem. It doesn't come from any man. It comes from God himself and Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection is pivotal. Remember that 53 days? crucifixion, resurrection, that resurrection is pivotal to the gospel. Without the resurrection, the gospel falls apart. And Paul makes a big deal of it right here. And he says, he gives an, uh, a, a credit to the brethren who are with him. Now, Paul traveled with people and um, sometimes those people, you know, included Barnabas and John Mark and others. And sometimes it didn't. So whoever he was hanging out with at the time he wrote this letter, he gives them credit for having been present. But you can tell as you read this letter that it's very personal. This letter is coming from Paul himself. No, they're not sitting down in a group and writing this letter. It's coming from one person, the Apostle Paul, and it's being written to whom? To the churches of Galatia. You remember? Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all of those cities, various churches in each of those cities, that's who he's writing to. All right, what we're going to find here is that Paul preaches a gospel of Jesus plus nothing. If you're taking notes, write those three words down, Jesus plus nothing. All right, let's keep going. Here's how Paul goes in the next verse, in verses 3 and 4 and 5. He starts out by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Paul wanted, as his very first words to them, to be a blessing that contained the gospel. He wanted them to be able to receive grace. Just let that word sit with you for just a second. Grace. What does it mean? What is it? And what is it that Paul is wishing for them, hoping for them, desiring for them? What is he blessing them with? Grace of God. It is his goodwill. It is his favor. It is God engaging your life in a meaningful, transformative way. That is grace. And Paul desired for them to have that experience. Not just grace, but also peace. The peace that comes from experiencing grace with God. And this peace, it has to do with an end to conflict. Now, where was the conflict that needed to end? The conflict was between children of darkness and children of light. It was between people who were lost and dead to God and those who needed to be made alive to God. It was 
a conflict between God and man that was produced by sin. And Paul's wish was that all of us would experience his grace that leads to peace. And that this peace would actually result for us in a real tranquility, a real serenity, a real peace. Now, I'll bet if you all think about your lives right now, you'll consider uh, this idea of peace. Like how much serenity, how much peace are you actually experiencing in your life? For a lot of us, our lives are tremendously um, conflicted. We're, We're struggling. It feels like a battle. It feels really, really hard. Now, Paul's wish, his desire was that we would be able to have peace. But I just want to ask you to to think about this. Do you think that that peace that Paul was wishing that they would experience was primarily exterior or interior? Do you think that peace was primarily exterior or interior? In other words, was Paul promising or wishing that there would be an end to all conflict in your life? That there would be no more trouble between, between Christians and non-Christians. That there would be no more trouble between uh, pe- people and their enemy, uh, uh, the devil. Was, th- was that what he was hoping would go away? Actually, no. If you were to look throughout the Gospels in the teaching of Jesus and throughout the teaching of Paul, you will find that there are repeated promises that you will have conflict Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you also. Okay, so conflict is an expected exterior conflict where we have that. But what about the interior? What about in in your inner man? Is it possible for you to have an inner peace? and inner um, rest and serenity, even when the world around you is kind of going crazy. You know, we're in the middle of this wild election season and all of this stuff is happening and we have no idea how it's going to end. Is it possible for you and me to have an inner peace even when all of that's happening? I suggest that it is. I believe that that peace is the peace that, that Paul was praying that we would experience, an interior peace. Now, it's important that we recognize that um, God has given to us uh, this treasure of the gospel in, in our lives. And I love this verse here from 2 Corinthians, just as a reminder, it says that we have this treasure in jars of clay, that's our earthen body, to show the surpassing power belongs to who? To God and not to us. It's not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. God has placed this gospel in you to give you that interior peace so that you can carry that with you wherever you go. So that who gets seen? You? No. So that people will see Jesus and they'll recognize him in our lives and the gospel stays alive and is shared. This morning as I was praying with the team, I was reminded of that passage in 2 Corinthians that talks about how God has given to every one of us the ministry of reconciliation. And the way that God is reconciling the world to himself is through Christ who lives within us, who manifests the glory of God through us. People see a living testimony of the gospel of Jesus. It's awesome. It's powerful. Okay. So Paul's wish, his passion was for grace and peace. And now I want you to consider this idea that this grace and peace has a source. It comes from somewhere. It has a beginning. It begins not with you and I, not with what we do, not with, not with who we are, not with our great personalities, but it comes from God himself. 
When I was a young man, uh, the age of many of you, I uh, had the opportunity to travel to northern Minnesota, where I was a missionary, and uh, and I got to go to this amazing lake called Lake Itasca. Have any of you ever been to Lake Itasca State Park? Okay, I'm the only one. So at Lake Itasca, there's this beautiful lake, which is spring-fed. So in the depths of the lake, there are springs that are living, and the water is gushing forth. And as the water gushes forth, it rolls over these rocks into this stream. And just a few miles away, this stream becomes the mighty Mississippi River that flows thousands of miles, 2,552 miles to the Gulf of Mexico from the north of Minnesota. And I had the opportunity to stand there and nearly jump across the Mississippi River. Now, I'm from Mississippi. We didn't spend a whole lot of time at the river, but every time we went, we realized, man, you could hardly see across that thing. But it all begins somewhere. It all begins somewhere. And this grace and peace that we have, it begins with our Father. He is the source. He is the one that feeds life to us. And we all need to know who our source of life is. And yet what we find ourselves doing is looking for life In all the wrong places. We find ourselves looking for life in our relationships with people. We find ourselves looking for life in our financial situation. Or or maybe our, our marriage or our grades. Or in some other place. And the end result is... We begin to view that thing or that place as our source. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 2, it says this, My people Israel have done two great evils. They have forsaken me, the living water, and they have cut for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. The prophet Jeremiah rebuked the people of Israel because God desired to be their living water. And they were like, oh, living water, nobody's got time for that. Let me just go out here and let me, let me dig a hole and let me build a, 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 a viaduct and a cistern and we'll catch the water and we'll hold the water and we'll have plenty. But what were they trusting They were trusting in their own capacity to create for themselves a solution to a problem that truly only God could solve. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Do you ever find yourself coming up with your solution? Thinking, oh, God's not going to take care of this. I need to do something. And so you get in there and you you just get involved and you try to make everything work. And the next thing you know, it all turns to... You know what? You know, right? So, as I think about this, our grace and our peace come from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I am not looking to him as my source, then I need to do some metanoia, don't I? I need to have a change in my thinking. I need to agree with God about this. That that this weed I'm smoking is not where life comes from. It may feel like it when I'm doing it. Or this porn that I'm looking at is not where life comes from. It may seem like it momentarily, temporarily, but it's death. And we need to do that metanoia, that repentance, that saying, look, I agree, God, that that's death. That's not a source. That's a broken cistern. And and I return to living water. I return to you, God, and to your son, Jesus Christ, as my one and my only source. I want to allow you to be life for me, for you to meet my needs, and not to be looking to these other things. So the fact that this grace and peace comes from God points to the fact that he is our one and our only true source. 
And then it goes on in this beautiful gospel presentation to talk about how Jesus Christ gave himself. Now, I love the movie The Chosen. Have any of you seen it? And there are lots of really great uh, videos that they do about it. And uh, in some of those videos, I've seen discussions about who was it that killed Jesus? You know, was it the Jews who killed Jesus or was it the Romans who killed Jesus? Well, Jesus himself gave the answer to that in the Gospel of John. He says, no one can take my life. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Jesus gave himself. He did so passionately. He did so intentionally. He did so out of love for you because he wanted to fulfill the Father's will. Paul states this over and over again. Another reference to Paul's uh, saying that Jesus gave his life is in 1 Timothy 2.6. It also says it in Ephesians 5.25 and in Titus 2.14. Paul repeats this idea because it's important. He wants us to know that Jesus gave his life. And Jesus did that in obedience to the Father so that, so that something would happen so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. He might rescue us from this present evil age. You know, our age is characterized by uh, a law that governs this age, and it is a law called sin and death. Sin and death. You sin, you die, and you spend your life eternally separated from God because of this law of sin and death. But Romans 12, uh, Romans 8, 1 and following says this, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Jesus came to rescue us from this present evil age. We're not made for this world. We're not citizens in this place. We are made for God himself. We are citizens of his eternal kingdom, and he came to rescue us from this evil age according to the will of God. So I want you to know something. Just as Jesus gave himself willingly, it was God's will that Jesus be given for you. And, and sometimes when we think about uh, how things happen. It's like God created the world and he meant for everything to be wonderful and then sin entered into the world. And so we almost get the idea that God is up in heaven scratching his head, kind of wondering, what do I do now? They totally messed everything up. I didn't see that coming. We get that weird idea, don't we? But you know <laughs> that it was God's will from the foundation of the world before he ever created mankind. The book of Revelation says that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Get your head around that. You want the reference on that? I can see your eyes, Gabriel. It's Revelation 13, 8. So look that up. Revelation 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, there's only one thing that that could possibly mean. You want to know what it is? It's that God knew before he ever created the world that man would sin, that man would fall, and that there would have to be a sacrifice in order for that man to be able to have a relationship with him. And God, who is a trinity, has always been a trinity, has always existed as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, knew that Jesus would go and resolve the problem, that Jesus would go and he would bring the gospel to mankind. It was always his plan. Jesus was not God's plan B. He was always God's plan. All right, so let's keep going here. 
Paul says then, uh, he rebukes the Galatians because of you've got this beautiful gospel, Jesus Christ crucified and risen, and here he presents the problem. He says, I am amazed, I'm stunned, I'm dumbfounded that you people are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for what? A different gospel. You are leaving behind this gospel of grace. This gospel that comes where God himself provides for your need. God himself is your source. God himself takes care of the problem. You have forsaken that to kind of say, well, let's just see if we can add a little something to this to kind of make this a little bit more acceptable to everyone. Because, you know, Christianity was born out of Judaism. Okay, Judaism existed and Jesus Christ was a Jew. He was born under the law and uh, he followed the law. In fact, he fulfilled the law. He kept the law to God's satisfaction. And so when the church started, most of the people that were in it were Jews. And most of the men in the church, in the early church, had had that little procedure done. You know that one that happens on the eighth day when you're just a little baby? That procedure, the snip-snip procedure. They had all had that. And in their mind, in order to be clean, in order to be a good person, in order to be acceptable, you had to have that procedure done. And so they're like, well, then uh, maybe what we need to do then is, yes, we'll, we'll have Jesus, and, and that's all good. But if you receive Jesus, then what you're going to have to do is to have the little procedure done too. We're going to add something to it. But when you add something to it, it becomes a different gospel. It becomes a distortion. It's not the original 100% organic gospel. And Paul says that very clearly in verse 7. He says, it is not really another gospel at all. He's saying, you think that this is good news? It is not good news. I mean, most of you are grown men. Having this procedure at this time in your life is not going to be fun at all. Okay? So it's not good news. For a number of reasons, but the biggest reason was that it added something to the gospel, the plain, simple gospel of Jesus. It added a requirement that went beyond Jesus. Jesus plus circumcision. No, that is no gospel at all. And he says, it's not a gospel at all, but there are those people there who are among you and they are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. They had sinister motives. They wanted to make this something other than what it was. And Paul had presented to them a plain, simple gospel of Jesus crucified, Jesus risen. Repent and believe in Jesus. Receive the Holy Spirit. That was the gospel. There's no and this. And yet there were people among them in the area of Galatia that were adding something to it. And he rebuked them for that. He corrected them for that. And then he goes on to say, but even if we or an angel from heaven were to come down and to preach a gospel which is contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Wow, Paul, that's really strong language. Couldn't you just be a little nicer in what you're saying? No, he's accursed. That, that word is anathema. And as if Paul didn't think that he made the point well enough, in verse 8, he repeats the whole thing all over again. And as we have said before, one verse prior, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. So I think it's kind of safe to say that Paul has some pretty strong feelings about adding stuff to the gospel. 
He uses very serious language here. That word anathema that he uses twice in verses 8 and 9 means to be set apart for destruction. Anybody want that kind of curse? I would think not, especially from Paul. That would be like, what? Yeah, that'd be really not good. All right, let's jump into verse 10. This is the last verse, and I'll let you go after this. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Oh, if I were striving to please men, I would not have said anathema. Just by the way, just so you know, I wouldn't have said a curse because that's really strong language. But I'm not really concerned about pleasing men. My one and only desire is, is, is to be a bondservant of Christ. He says, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Do you know how crazy it is to be a bond servant of Jesus right now? Let's just say not popular, okay? You know what they're doing to Christians at this time? And here I am running around telling everybody about Jesus, and they're taking them out to the Colosseum, and they're using them as bait for wild animals. They're setting them afire. They're hanging them in the streets on poles, If I were concerned about what men was thinking, then I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So what we we find is that we're all drawn to this place where we have to consider our own gospel, our own, the message that we preach, our message that we teach. What is our gospel? Do we share with people Jesus in his organic form, Jesus in his unadulterated form, Jesus not mixed with any other thing, any other requirement, any other expectation, or are we teaching Jesus plus nothing? Think about it. Maybe your message is, yeah, you're saved by faith, but to be truly pleasing to God what you really need to do is go to church every Sunday. Yeah, you did receive Jesus by faith, but now that you have received Jesus by faith, you really have to have this other experience. So come and let me add this other experience to you in addition to your salvation. Then you'll be pleasing to God. What is your gospel? Is it Jesus plus nothing or Jesus plus some other requirement that you have added that was never there in the teachings of the apostles or of Paul. Now, some of you are saying, hang on just a minute. What are you saying here? What I'm saying is that if God takes our sin and he places all of our sin on Christ... And he takes all of the righteousness of Jesus and he places it on us and credits it to our account. Then that means that we are righteous. That means that we are right. That means that we are in right standing, not by anything that we've done or accomplished in our own effort, but by the work of Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ and God is pleased with Christ, then God is pleased with us. Now, a lot of us think that it's really important that we maintain the kind of humility that is self-deprecating humility. It tears down who I am. You know, our interpretation of I must decrease and he must increase is that I need to get out of the way. I need to tear myself down. I need to do something to remove myself from the equation when the whole while the thing that Jesus has been up to all along is including you in the equation. You were far from him. You were isolated from him. You were dead to him. And he wanted you made alive together with him. He wanted you to experience union with him so that in union with him, he could, in fact, bring you back to life. 
and allow you to fulfill the destiny for which you were created, and that is to know God, your maker, to love him, to serve him, to walk with him just as Adam walked with him in the garden. God doesn't want you moved out of the way. He wants you fully engaged. He wants you fully present to him. And he wants his spirit to be alive in you, giving life to you. So if you find yourself hearing another gospel, if you find yourself teaching another gospel, come away from that. Put away your circumcision blades. Have a change in your thinking, a change in your heart, and return to the pure, 100% organic, unadulterated gospel of Jesus plus nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Galatians. We thank you for the powerful truth that is here in it. And Lord, we really want to fully understand what it is that you're teaching us here. We're, we're open-hearted and we're open-minded and we, we just invite you to be our teacher. Well, you already are. We just want to be responsive to you as our teacher. We pray, Father, that um, your spirit would be working in this room, revealing your righteousness to every man, woman, boy, and girl that's present here, and that they would be able to allow for that change in their thinking, that shifting in their thoughts, that in, embraces the full truth of the gospel and leaves any extraneous addition, any additive behind. Lord, we trust you with the work that you're doing in our heart. We trust you with the work that you're doing in our lives. God, we're all facing circumstances and situations that are very real out there. When we leave here today, there are folks here that have big projects that need completing. There's a family here that's really hurting because of conflict between parents and children and, and problems that are so much larger than them. God, we desperately need your help in those situations. Would you open our eyes, open our hearts to be led by you? Because we know that you've given us your spirit as a source and uh, a guide in life. And we really want to follow that. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for your love for us. And we praise you in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.